0: Welcome to FaithBridge Sermons Podcast. Today's sermon features Bible teacher Scott Pollock, and it was recorded on Sunday, March 6th. Thanks for tuning in. We'd love the chance to connect with you, so drop us a line at podcast at faithbridge.org. And if you're in the area, join us this Sunday on campus at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. and come say hi. And you can always join us for FaithBridge online at faithbridge.org slash live. Here's Scott. Yeah, I'm your third Aggie in a row. Sorry. uh. (laughs) It's my people. All right. I like it. It's great to be with you. It's such an honor. I get to talk about uh, my favorite person in the world, and that's Jesus. And we get to talk about that together and study that together. So uh, let's pray. We'll do that. Father in heaven, we love you. We are so, so blessed that you welcome us into your presence that we get to continue the worship we've already begun today by studying your word. And we are so grateful that you want to speak to us, that you are ready and willing and desirous to speak into our lives, our hearts, into our very situation, into the needs that we have, into the relationships. You want to, and you're ready. And we want you to speak. We're inviting you to speak. And so let me give you an opportunity, wherever you're tuning in this morning, wherever you're sitting here, um, to ask God to speak to you. It's a simple prayer. Just pray that God would speak to you this morning. I think it's a prayer he loves to answer. Double that prayer and pray for someone around you. If you're tuning in online, just pray for your neighbor or someone that's in your apartment or house with you. someone who's sitting here beside you or b- behind you in front, of you—if even if you don't know who they are, just ask God to speak to those that are with you and around you. Humbly, I would ask that you would say a quick prayer for me, too, that God would speak through me today and that it would be understandable and true. Father, we trust you. Oh, we love you. We honor you. We worship you. We trust you. We honor you. We worship you. We bless you, Father, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was one of those super awkward moments. You ever had one of those? I'm just glad I survived it to tell you about it. It was that awkward. It was... Gosh, almost 25 years ago, I was in a small village in southeastern Botswana on a trip there. One of my first long across the pond kind of international mission trips, first of many. And uh, me and three friends were there. I, I was the lowest on the totem pole. I was helping lead worship. I got to share my story uh, once and I was carrying the luggage basically. It was fantastic for me. and. Uh, I remember this day like it was yesterday in a room about this size, and it was a student conference from students all over the country of Botswana, beautiful people. Um, They they identified students like in in teens to mid-20s, so there was a wide range, and some of them had walked, had walked for two weeks to be at this conference, okay? Um, It was just gorgeous to worship with Botswanans, and uh, it, it was amazing. Um, during our time there, we had many different translators. My favorite was a guy named Frank. To this day, I've never met a person with a more beautiful smile than Frank. Okay, and the best trans—I've had a lot of translators around the world. Frank was by far hands hands down the best. He would stand next to the speaker. At, again, only once it was me when I was trying to sh- uh, share my testimony stand next to our speaker and would use exactly the same hand motions and voice inflection as the speaker right next to me. It was like a mirror image. It was awesome. But I remember this one day in this very, very humble village. We were in the school in the center of the village. Most of the houses, in fact, all of the houses around were huts. There's no air conditioning. Um, It was a very, very humble place. There was only one vehicle in the entire village it was a gray Datsun pickup truck owned by the chief of the village I still remember because it had an Iron Maiden bumper sticker on the back of it (laughs) Um, and uh, so the chief uh, was uh, the most important guy in the city and we were at this conference they were there for about a week we were just eating with them living with them or sharing God's word with them it's just absolutely life-changing experience for me and probably for many of them because God was there um, during one of the worship services, something happened this awkward moment. Now, to prepare you for it, I need to tell you that in Setswanin, the, the language there that uh, the Botswanans speak, there is a very special word, and it's used for multiple things, all of them very special. The word is pula, and it is the name of their money. Um, it is also a word referring to rain, which is very, very precious. In uh, Southern Africa, and it's an honorific word that you say in the presence of special people. Um, when people enter the room, it, it's a um, it, it's multi use, right? But pula. And so here's the moment: we're in worship, and uh, Frank is up on stage doing something, and um, we're singing a song, or, or we're we're, we're having a bit of a message or or something is happening on stage, all the attention is on stage and everybody is seated, except from the back of the room, people start rising and you hear them saying pula as they raise their hand in the air like this. They're not shouting it, they're not whispering it, they're just saying it right in the middle of their tone, pula, pula, and it it begins to spread and everybody stands up and, and everything stops on stage, right? And we notice from the back, it was the owner of the Iron Maiden Datsun pickup truck, right? And he had a suit on, and he was walking, and everybody knew, oh, this is the chief of the village. Very important. Pula, Pula, Pula. Everybody, and so everything stops. He actually comes up on stage, gives the microphone for a little bit, and, and welcomes everyone to his village. This is his place, right? Um, and it was, it, was a, it was, I was like, wow, I've never... Never met a chief before. You know, I mean, this is crazy. Um, And then the awkward moment. He gets down, everybody claps. They're still all standing, and then he goes down the aisle to sit. And this is what Frank says when he gets the microphone back. He says it in Setsuanen, and all I know is that he just said something big because everyone sucked the air out of the room when he said it. Everyone went, (gasps) And he grabbed the mic, this is what Frank said. Okay, now let's get back to worshiping the chief of all chiefs. <laughs> uh, I had to ask later on afterwards, hey, everybody, what, what did Frank say in that moment? I just know everybody breathed in. And they're like, this is what he said. I'm like, no, what, he was just, I, wow. And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, Frank, I knew I loved you. I love you even more now. I don't know about you, but I I want some of the bold clarity that Frank had in that moment. How about you? I want us to look at Jesus today, again, as we move ahead in the Gospel of Luke and focus on his arrival in Jerusalem in chapter 19. I want us together to see through to the true. I want us to see through to the true, and I hope you're interested in doing that with me because I I have a problem, I just wanna confess it to you. And I think I may have some uh, co-partners in the room. My, My problem is this, I underestimate Jesus. I underestimate Jesus because I underestimate my need for Jesus, and I do it constantly. And this text, as beautiful and monumental as it is, hopefully um, God will help us to remedy that, even just a step together. So in Luke chapter 19, we'll start in verse 28. If you've got your Bibles, it will also be on your screen. For those of you who are tuning in from your apartment or your couch, you've got a Bible somewhere, so please go grab that. We'd love for you to read it um, in a Bible in your hands again, but it'll be on the screen. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. This is what it says. After he, that's Jesus, had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So, those who were sent away went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. And as soon as he was approaching near the descent, of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem he saw the city and wept over it saying if you had known in this day even you the things which made make for peace but now They've been hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus entered the temple, began to drive out those who were selling and saying, it is written my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den and he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they couldn't find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. How about that? I don't want you to hang on every word I say, but let's together hang on every word that Jesus says, every word in God's word today today. As we look at this, let me give you some things to sort of fill in some of the gaps in your mind. If you're a visual learner like I am, I'd like to share some art with you. I'm a bit of an artist and I collect art, at least uh, free public domain art on my computer. Um, I'm not that rich. Come on. Uh, So I collect art and here's some of my favorites. This first one is from Frederick Church. I think it was from 1870. What it shows you is what I want you to see is what Jerusalem would have looked like from the Mount of Olives. Um, Jerusalem is built on several mounts, mountains with names. The Temple Mount, if you can see in the picture here, is technically built on Mount Moriah, where Abraham went to offer Isaac in the book of Genesis. Um, That's where the temple was built. That's where God told David to build the temple and Solomon actually did it there. Below to the south of Mount Moriah is Mount Zion. That's where the king's palace was, the city of Zion. Now up above it to the east is Mount called Olivet, the um, Mount of Olives, there were olive Uh, trees and orchards all over it. Still today there are olive trees. Um, Down to the right in the Kidron Valley, the north side of the Kidron Valley, will be the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press, and they typically pressed olives three times. You can still buy first, second press, third press olive oil. Um, And remember, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane will go to pray three times in the olive press. And remember, blood came forth from him like he was being pressed. All of this happened right here. So I just want you to see in this first picture, as you come up to the Mount of Olives where Jesus is, you look down on the city of Jerusalem and particularly the Temple Mount. This next one is by uh, Enrique Simonet, And the title of this picture is in Uh, Latin, and I'll mispronounce it. So in Latin, the the title of this painting is called He Wept Over It. We read that in the text. When he came and saw Jerusalem, in this very monumental moment, he he wept over it. So this is he with his disciples uh, weeping over the city of Jerusalem. Again, you can see him looking down on it. These last two images from my favorite biblical artist, perhaps, James Jacques Tissot, all of these art prints are rather small and they're in the Brooklyn Museum. This first one is Jesus descending the Mount of Olives. You can see the S curve of his descent and people with palm branches. He, you almost kind of find him. It's like, where's Waldo in this picture? He's on the colt in the middle. Um, Jesus is usually in the middle of important paintings. Uh, and this next one is sort of like when he's entered the city now in the temple area. There's some arches and he's right in the middle. You can see them singing and worshiping God as it said in the text, just to sort of take your mind to our story, okay? Now, if we get back to the text as we approach it, and we'll walk through it a little more slowly, I want to prepare you for a couple of things. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus makes one trip to Jerusalem one big ministry trip to Jerusalem, right? But we know from the text of the Gospels that Jesus went to, excuse me, went to Jerusalem annually, if not many times. First of all, there were mandatory feast days for all Jews, four of them a year. And so Jesus would have gone up. Um, In the Gospel of John, which is uh, unique from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, it says that he went up to Passover four or five times during his ministry. In Luke, we've already seen Jesus in Jerusalem twice. Once when he was circumcised, eight days old, and one when he was left behind by his negligent parents when he was 12, right? Just kidding. I mean, they were traveling with a caravan, and they thought he was in the caravan, but he was back in the temple talking with the scribes. Uh, And so it says in that text, they went to Jerusalem for the Passover, as was their custom every year. So we know Jesus went to Passover and all the other mandatory feasts in Jerusalem every year. But Matthew, Mark, and John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, excuse me, record one movement to Jerusalem in his ministry. And they do that on purpose. It's supposed to be dramatic. It's supposed to be emphatic. We're waiting for Jesus to get to the city that's the capital, where the temple is. And in the Gospel of Luke, once his ministry begins, we have to wait till chapter 13 for Jesus to turn his gaze to Jerusalem. Then in chapter 17 and 18 and 19, we see him moving towards Jerusalem. Now, this movement, if you're like the people there at the time, you need to understand this movement to Jerusalem is more epic-making than you think that it is. It is way more significant than you think it is. He is moving towards Jerusalem as Matthew, Mark, and John, <laughs> I keep saying that. Matthew, Mark, and Luke present it in this very, very important, important moment. And as he goes, we know the route that he goes. He's leaving Galilee up in the north around the sea, where he does most of his early ministry. And uh, he doesn't go by the way of the Mediterranean coast, the Via Maris. Uh, some people went that way. He goes down the Jordan Rift Valley. Nobody walks through the middle because it's mountainous, but also you have to go through Samaria. And we don't like those folks, okay? So he goes down the Jordan Rift Valley, and he comes to the city of Jericho. He stops there, and then he starts to climb the Judean mountains as he ascends into Jerusalem, which is up, singing the Psalms of Ascent as he went with all of the other Jews who would have been going up for Passover at the same time. The reason why we know he went to Jericho is because he met a guy there, and then he met a guy on the way out, Zacchaeus. Um, climbed a sycamore tree because he was a wee little man. Remember, that happened right outside Jericho on his way in. But before that, he meets in Mark um, chapter 10 and again, Luke chapter 18. He meets the son of Timaeus. There. This is important because we're me- meant to read all this together. He meets the son of Timaeus. And we know that because that's just what we call him, Bar Timaeus. Bar means son of. He Son of Timaeus. And that's what his name is Jesus meets him because he's passing by in this throng of people and Bartimaeus is sitting there by, beside the road and he's blind. And, and he asked someone, what's happening? Who's going by? And they said, oh, it's, it's Jesus. It's the guy that everyone's talking about. It's the worker of miracles. He, he's the great rabbi. And, and Bartimaeus says this, Jesus, and he uses this title, son of David, have mercy on me, And people, hush, hush. Bartimaeus don't bother him he cries out all the louder son of David have mercy on me now this is important what he calls Jesus is important Jesus stops turns to him What do you ask of me? I'd like to see. And he heals him and he can see. And so Bartimaeus in many ways becomes a foil for all of the Jewish leaders that Jesus will encounter his last week in Jerusalem who say they can see but can't. All of this is important because this is the background to our very first verse that we read. Let's read it again, verse 28. And he, Jesus, had said these things to Bartimaeus and to Zacchaeus and then a parable. He was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. So this movement to Jerusalem is way, way, way significant. It's far more epic making than you might imagine it to be. Verse 29, when he had approached Bethpage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olive, he sent two of his disciples forward. Now Bethany and Bethpage, are two daughters of Jerusalem. In ancient Near East, you need to understand that a city is only a city if it has a wall. It's not a city if it's not protected by a wall. So. Large cities like Jerusalem or Damascus at the time would have had a massive wall around it, but still people would have lived outside of the wall. And they lived in little villages, largely agricultural villages, and those were the daughters of the city. So Bethany and Bethpage would have technically been daughters of Jerusalem. Does that make sense? because they don't have walls, they're very small villages. Bethany is just behind the tip of Mount of Olives and Bethpage is a little behind her, okay? And so as Jesus comes up the mountains from the east, he's climbing up west and he comes to Bethpage and Bethany, daughters of Jerusalem. And then this is what he says to his disciples, go ahead into the village. You'll find there a colt tied on which no one has ever ridden bring it, untie it, bring it to me. If anybody says, what are you doing? Why are you untying it? Say that the Lord has need of it. And they went and found it exactly as he said. And they said, why are you untying it? Says the Lord has need of it. And apparently they let him and they brought it back to Jesus. Now, this is important too, because 500 years before this moment, Zechariah, one of the final prophets of the Old Testament, he writes this, rejoice, listen, rejoice. O daughters of Zion, shout, O daughters of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, endowed with salvation and humble riding on a donkey, the colt, even the foal of a donkey. And who is that written to 500 years before? The villages outside of Jerusalem. He says, rejoice, O daughters of Zion. shout!" Oh, daughters of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, and he will bring his peace and his dominion will be from sea to sea forevermore. You need to understand this moment right here. His entrance into Jerusalem is far more historic than you might think it is. This entrance is far more historic than you might think it is. And Bartimaeus called him the son of David. What will they say about Jesus? Look, verse 36. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, again, he's coming down the uh, the western face of the Mount of Olives, going down into the Kidron Valley, olive trees all around. He's going to get to the bottom of the Kidron Valley and then come up probably into the sheep's gate where they would bring, listen, where they would bring the sacrificial lambs into the temple or into the eastern gate. He's going down to the Kidron Valley and then coming up into the temple area, okay? As he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen saying, shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this is also important. This is from Psalm 118, verse 22. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record this moment. They record very similar things. All of them quote Psalm 118. Some of them use the word Hosanna. We sing that on Palm Sunday, Hosanna. That's an old Hebrew word that means save us now. Isn't that good? Hosanna. Blessed is he, or they sing, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That word order is a little wooden and awkward in English. In Hebrew, it really means blessed in the name of the Lord is the one who comes. Blessed in the name of the Lord is the king who is coming. And then they say peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You see, they are recognizing Jesus as king. Bartimaeus, maybe the day before, recognized him as the son of David. Both of these titles are messianic. Both of these titles are huge. You realize this title is far more remarkable than you think that it is. These titles, we read right over them. Son of David, king. But these titles are far more remarkable than you might think they are. And I'll prove it to you. Look in the text. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, some of the Pharisees who always seem to be in the scene with Jesus, like private investigators, not not covert, but overt. They're just always standing in the corner like this, writing things down. Some of the Pharisees say to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, what are they talking about? they're talking about the fact that they're referring to him as king, because they recognize that that is messianic. They're identifying Jesus with God himself, with the priest, prophet, king that is going to come and restore all things. They're recognizing him as that individual. And the Pharisees say, that's wrong, rebuke them. And I love, oh I love Jesus' response. I tell you, if these become silent, the stones themselves will cry out. Isn't that good? The whole creation itself is groaning, awaiting its redemption along with the sons of God. Romans. The whole world, the whole universe and creation is groaning, waiting. And it's almost like Jesus is saying, the stones themselves, if they had toes, would be up on the tips of them, waiting and watching this Moment, This moment, this movement to Jerusalem, this entrance with these titles, it's a huge moment. We've been waiting for it. We've been expecting it. And then Jesus' words tell us how important it is. Verse 41, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept. If you had known in this day the things which make for peace. Remember Zechariah 9, verse 9, 10. Humble mounted on a donkey, and he brings peace with him. This is the only time that Jesus in the Gospels is not walking on foot. It's actually the only time in the whole New Testament that he is um, riding an animal except for one. That's in Revelation 19 where he's riding a white horse. Very different. He's coming out of heaven for judgment and kings in the ancient Near East only rode white horses when they had already won the victory. So he's riding into battle in Revelation 19 on a white horse which says it's already done. The only other time is here riding on a donkey which in the ancient Near East is a symbol of peace. I come in peace. His first advent, Jesus our savior, he came in peace. His second advent will be in judgment. Here he comes in peace. If only you had known the things which make for peace. And then he speaks to the future. The near future, AD 70, General Titus, that would become Caesar several years later, comes in with the Roman legions, surrounds Jerusalem, there's a siege, it is bad, and then they, they break into the city, break down the walls, the temple is destroyed, all of the articles inside the temple are taken away, they cover the stones of the temple surrounding and the walls with pitch, because they're all limestone in Jerusalem, they cover them with pitch and light them on fire, which boils the water inside of limestone stones, and they explode like bombs, People who were there in that day, Josephus tells us that stones were exploding in the burning wreckage for days. This is absolutely the most inconceivable event for a Jew being alive at that time. It had happened before in 586 BC under the Assyrians, Babylonians, but here in AD 70, just about six years after the temple is even finished under Herod the Great, It is destroyed and Jesus talks about that. But now they have been hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave you one stone upon another. The Western Wall, what we call the Wailing Wall, the embankment of the Temple Mount was the only wall that was left standing because it held up the Temple Mount. It's so important to Jews now Only because it is the closest original place to where the temple stood, but no stone was left upon another. Jesus was literally prophesying what happened. Watch his last statement because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. What I think is important behind that statement is perhaps one of the most important chapters in the entire Old Testament. Daniel 9, in my opinion, is perhaps the most important chapter in all of the Old Testament. And we're talking, there's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament, okay? 39 books, a lot of important information. Daniel 9, my opinion, is the best. It's the highest peak. Why? Well, it says a lot of things, but near the end of the chapter, it says, in prophetic terms, looking to the future, 70 weeks have been decreed for you, or 77s. 70 groups of seven years, 490 years. And then it goes to specify how those are breaking out. It says seven and 62 weeks, that's 69. There's only leaving one left. 69 weeks will be decreed from the writing of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem until the coming of Messiah the Prince. Okay? 69 times seven, 483 years is going to happen from the writing of the decree, which we can date to 444, from the writing of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of Messiah the Prince. Jesus says to the leaders, you should have recognized the day of your visitation. They could have. It was prophesied to the day. If you work it out with the Jewish lunar calendar, and many have, it takes us right up to March year 30 or 33, however you do it. I think it's 33. It comes right to the day. Jesus says you should have recognized the day of your visitation. It was here, and they missed it. They missed it. This movement to Jerusalem is far more epic-making than you think it is, than I think it is. This entrance." is far more remarkable and historic, and these titles are far more significant. And finally, this man that we're seeing is far more essential than you think he is. He's the center of everything. He's the center of the whole movement. He's the center of all of history. It's right here, right in this moment. This is his official presentation as king to the Jews. So my big idea is pretty simple. And that's this, the king still deserves a welcome. How about that? In your heart, in your home, in your life, in your marriage, in your relationships, in your work, in your finances, in your resources, in your spiritual gifts, in your ministry, in your children, in your parents, in your siblings, the king still deserves a welcome. He wasn't welcomed as he should have been by the Jewish leaders. He was welcomed by his disciples. They recognized him. They called him the son of David and the king. They understood him to be the Messiah. Peter, the disciple, you are the Christ, the son of God, in Caesarea Philippi. A small group understood, but the ones who should have didn't. And that king still deserves a welcome into your heart and mind. Now you may be thinking, because I would, if I were you, sitting there, Scott. You don't know me. I love Jesus. I welcome Jesus. I don't know about any other way that I could welcome Jesus more than I am right now. And that may be true. I I doubt it because there's always, there's always space, as I confessed to you at the beginning, where we underestimate Jesus because we underestimate our need for Jesus. I wanna talk to you about a simple application that's become important to me. And that's the difference between transparency which many of us value as a great ethic to live by, and vulnerability. There's a big difference between the two. Transparency in many ways could be this. It would be like, hey, I want to be transparent with you. Hey, um, come to my house. I'll open the door. Look, I'm transparent. I'll show you, right? Um, now, Now, don't go anywhere you're not supposed to, but anyway, I'll show you. Like, so, you know, I mean, strangers don't open your ref- refrigerator, for example, right? Like nobody does that. If somebody you don't know walks into your house and goes up to you, open your refrigerator, you're like, that's, that's personal space there. I don't know, why are you doing that? That's not, nobody opens, no, nobody but family and friends are allowed to open my refrigerator, right? But we, in transparency, we'll say, well, you can go here, I'll show you anything you want here. See, that's different than vulnerability. Vulnerability for me, would be giving Jesus the keys to my house and saying, anywhere you like. There's some closets in the back. There's a storeroom. You can open the fridge. You can look under the beds. I I don't want to hide anything. You see, you're you're so essential that I want to invite you to to go anywhere. I want to welcome you everywhere. There's the difference between transparency, I, I, I hope I'm not um, stepping on your toes, but I sort of hope that I am. Uh, I, the difference between transparency and vulnerability is very simple, it's control. You see, I can control this, and I don't control that. And I, I, I need to tell you, friend, if there's one thing that Jesus will never be, it is controlled. He will never be controlled. That's, that's this, Je- Jesus is very, dangerous person to anyone who hoards a sense of control because he flexes and always challenges the borders that you put around him, always challenges the size of the box that you fit him in. That's who he is. Why? Because I, as I confess, consistently underestimate him because I first underestimate my need for him. And typically, the size of my Jesus meets the size of my need. Maybe it's the way for you. But this man, this savior, this life that we're studying in this series is far more essential. Way, way bigger. More beautiful, more gracious, more merciful. Yes, more holy and more just but more welcoming than we would ever expect him to be. There's a difference between transparency and vulnerability. The king who deserves a welcome in your life deserves vulnerability. I want to invite you to that. There are some places that you have not fully invited Jesus in in your life. I know it's true for me. It's got to be true for you. I'm thinking of a time when Jesus was in the boat with his disciples. It'd be Mark chapter four and several other places. He's on the Sea of Galilee up in the north and they're rowing from one side to the other. And uh, the miracle of this story is that their waves are so big, they're sort of crashing over the boat, yet Jesus is still asleep. You remember that? I always wonder, I read that. I'm like, how is that possible? First of all, I don't like boats anyway because I don't like water, but I can't sleep if a boat is doing this. And yet Jesus is sleeping on the boat. And the disciples come to him in the midst of this. They think they're all going to die. And they say, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing, right? And he wakes up and he says, hush. And the, the sea is as flat as a piece of glass. And he looks at them and he goes, why don't you have faith? And then do you remember in that story, they, they look at each other. It's almost like in hushed tones. They look at each other as Jesus turns around, probably goes back to sleep, right? Right. They look at each other and they say this, they go, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? They, they've been walking with Jesus for years, yet they look at each other and they go, he's bigger than we even thought he was. He's more powerful than we thought he was. Who is this man? Another event is in John chapter 19 in the Garden of Gethsemane, at the bottom of the Mount of Olives. When he's praying the night of his betrayal, Judas shows up with a throng of people, torches, and the chief priests and scribes come and Jesus presents himself, and he says, "Who are you seeking?" And they say, "Jesus the Nazarene." And I always he takes another step forward and he says, "It is I." This is a quote in Greek. It would be "ego a me." I am, which should remind the biblical student of the name of God from Exodus chapter three when Moses said, you're sending me back. Who should I tell him sent me? And he says, I am who I am. Translated the same in the Greek version of the Old Testament. In Jesus in this moment, who are you seeking? We're seeking Jesus the Nazarene. He steps forward, I am. And do you remember what it says? It says that everyone there poof, fell back from him in glory and fear. He's bigger. He's more beautiful. He's more remarkable than you think he is. And he wants you to welcome him fully into your life. The welcome that the king still deserves. And he wants to bring with him his grace and redemption. To make his power perfect in your weakness, to restore Restore, to resurrect to rebuild and redeem the darkest parts the parts that you're embarrassed about that's where he really wants to go and that's where he belongs if you're tuning in or listening here and you're thinking I've never really understood this person Jesus I want you to know that it's the most important person in all of history because he is God eternal made flesh to be with us so that he could live among us so we could never, ever shake our fist at God and say, you don't understand what it's like down here. You say, yes, I do. Yes, I do. And then he came and he said, I'm going to pay the penalty of your sin." to get you back into the presence of God. You remember the story of the Bible starts in a garden where we are in God's presence. It ends in a garden where we are in God's presence. The whole middle of the story is us trying to figure out how to get back into the presence of God. And we quickly realize we can't do it by ourselves. There's cherubim with a flaming sword guarding the way back into the garden. Yet when Jesus dies on the cross for you, for me, For everyone of all time, the gospel writers say that the veil of the temple tore in two from top to bottom, the veil that covered that place where God's presence rested on the Ark of the Covenant. It exposed it for you and I, symbolically but realistically saying, Jesus has paid the cost for your sin, welcoming you by faith in him into the presence of God together forever. He paid the penalty for your sin, was buried and raised to new life, and he asked but one thing, trust, which is the opposite of control. He asked your faith in him to say, I forgive you of your sins and welcome you into my family, restore you forevermore, secure in my love, sealed with his Holy Spirit, that is the beginning of a relationship that I invite you to if you're not already in it. And inside that relationship, I invite you to renew your understanding of a Jesus that is always bigger than you expect Him to be, always more beautiful, always more gracious and welcoming. Let me pray for you. Father, we bless you and thank you. Oh, we love you for giving us your one and only Son. And Jesus, We thank you that no one took your life, but you laid it down willingly. And we, maybe for the first time, tuning in or here, we would say, Jesus, I trust you. I put my faith in you as my Savior to forgive me of my sin and welcome me into your presence forever. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for being the down payment, the seal, of our redemption. Father, we bless you and thank you. We love you. We welcome you into our lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.